Hello, Greg Perry, the historic preservationist. We continue on with our episode today, the Copper Ring. The addition of Townsend to the Copper Ring proved valuable in other ways. He soon provided details of a loyalist, Christopher Duncheck. He was a spy sent to the Patriots. His mere presence initially improved Woodhall's mood as the pressure of being Washington's sole source of information from inside New York was lifted. Now he can settle into managing Townsend. He took care to meet with him again to reiterate his instructions to ensure the ring's careful system of deception was now maintained. Man managing another agent provided its challenges. Townsend's attitude to accommodating spying around the rest of his life was different from Woodhall. Townsend wasn't willing to give up his business to commit his full time to espionage, as Woodhall had expected he would. And unlike Woodhall, he wanted to be rewarded for his work, not necessarily through money, but through a public office provided by the American government once it won the war. This mercenary attitude was very much at odds with Woodhall's strained, almost martyred approach to spying, something he did out of duty, but with a sense of resentment. Fortunately, Washington assured Townsend, via Woodhall, that he would be suitably rewarded for his service once the war was over. He also pointed out to Woodhall the advantages of Townsend's continuing in business alongside his espionage work. It would provide him with a cover, with security, and with opportunities to gather information that might not otherwise be available. What Woodhull had initially seen as a hindrance to Townsend's work for the ring was turned around into an advantage, a way of ensuring their work continued smoothly and efficiently. Meanwhile, the strains of the work were telling on Jonas Hawkins, one of the two couriers who carried the ring's letters out of New York. Signs of Hawkins' fragility had been increasingly apparent over the course of 1779. Like Woodhull, he was feeling the strain of living a double life and putting himself in danger, and he made himself less available to carry messages. He had fallen so far from the heart of the ring that when Talmadge created his code, he didn't even include a number specifically for Hawkins. The growing danger of traveling in and out of New York finally became too much. Travelers were harassed by both the authorities and muggers on the roads. A lone man who deliberately kept away from others was particularly vulnerable to criminals and suspicious to the authorities. The capture of two copper letters over the summer confirming as it did that messages were being regularly transmitted in and out of the city. In short, British and Loyalist troops were on the lookout for anyone who may be a covert messenger. In August, Hawkins had a close call when troops closed in on him, and he had to destroy a letter to avoid being caught. He ate the letter. In September, Hawkins refused to come into the city and pick up a letter instead insisting Townsend come out to Long Island to meet him. Townsend, who had not been working under pressure for as long as the rest, believed the courier's fears were imaginary. He refused to cooperate any more with Hawkins, who slipped out of the ring, probably to his great relief.
friends and allies. Woodhall was still making occasional trips into New York. For at least one of these journeys, he recruited the help of Anna Strong, his neighbor and the wife of a distant relative who he was rotting in the British prison ship. By traveling with her, Woodhall could create the illusion of a married couple on the road. This was less likely to draw the attention of the patrols who were looking out for lone men acting singly. Strong, like Amos Underhill, played a supporting role in the ring. Others also made occasional appearances in their work. One of the most significant was Captain Nathan Woodhall, Abraham Woodhall's uncle. In his mid-fifties, Captain Woodhall learned, leaned more toward the politics of the Whigs than that of the Tories, the core supporters of the British crown in the Americas. Despite this, he entered the war as a loyalist rather than a patriot, joining a militia on the British side. It is clear his loyalty shifted somewhat in the war, as did of many moderates who experienced many unpleasantries of the British occupation. His first input to the Culper Ring in September of 1779 was to tell his nephew about accounts of war and the embarkation of large numbers of troops on the transport ships. This could have been a casual gossip, but two months later he provided information that confirmed he was deliberately feeding information to the Patriots. A detailed report on the positions of troops around Huntington, Long Island. Such insight from an officer inside the enemy army was incredibly invaluable. And so Talmadge and Washington set their sights on recruiting someone more senior someone who would have better access to leading commanders and information on the plans, someone who, in their eyes, had already shown he was susceptible to being turned, Colonel Benjamin Floyd. It is easy to see why Floyd caught the attention of the ambitious officers running the spy ring. He was a man who had covered for Woodhall when Colonel Simcoe was closing in on him, an act which demonstrated Floyd was either sympathetic to the Patriots or gullible to open and to manipulation. The looting of his property by Loyalists was sure to have roused his resentment against the people he had sided with. Surely this was a Loyalist who could be turned. To encourage Floyd's change of sides, Washington ordered the Patriot Governor of New York, George Clinton, to stop revolutionary raiders attacking Floyd's property. Let him see that only the loyalists were a problem and that he would be open to siding against them. With this done, Talmadge approached Woodhall, asking him to recruit Floyd. Woodhall refused. He and Floyd, distant relatives, have helped each other out, but Woodhall disliked Floyd, both personally and because of his Tory politics. Though he acknowledged the potential benefits of recruiting such a prominent man in the cause, he believed it also involved risk. As Floyd might turn on them, given the weakness of character Floyd had previously shown, and which they were to some extent relying upon to recruit him, it is easy to see how Floyd might have given the same game away or been turned against the Culper Ring by the British, the movement he came under pressure to love. Better than to keep Floyd in place as an innocent dope, 
able to cover for Woodhall in an emergency, since in his belief the man at the heart of the spy ring was a simple loyalist farmer, Woodhall. Improving operations. The more time they spent spying, the craftier the ring became in their methods. Townsend came up with a way of making his messages harder for the enemy to hide. He would buy a set of new sheets of paper, write his message in invisible ink on one of the sheets, and insert it at a prearranged place in the papers. The batch of paper would draw less suspicion than a single blank sheet. Though a good plan in principle, it fell short when Talmadge was not told in advance about which page the, mes- what the message would be on and so hard to use up so precious reagent chemicals swabbing blank sheets until he found the right one. It was also a relatively expensive way of making messages, as good blank paper was purchased as an import from Britain. Washington came up with a better solution. He suggested Townsend write his messages on the blank pages of pamphlets and books or between the lines of letters apparently writ- written to acquaintances. These documents would provide a better way to cover the blank space concealing the invisible writing. They would also be cheaper, and there were plenty of -of out-of-date almanacs and old pamphlets available in New York. Townsend happily adopted the solution, and the ring continued sending messages now and in with greater security than ever. As the ring's activities became more regular, Washington sought to formalize them, increasing the professionalism of the spy network. In October of 1779, he and Talmadge wrote up a document giving instructions on how Woodhall and Townsend should carry out their work and what their employees expected from each man. The document is interesting for the faith and ambition Washington clearly placed in his operatives and for the way it reflects his priorities at the time. He wanted Townsend to find out the following. How many soldiers were in the city? From which corps and where were they stationed? About the city's defenses, including how many redoubts there were, how many cannons each contained, and whether there were stake-lined pits in front of the defenses. How well the British Army was provisioned What's the morale and health of the soldiers in the corps? This was a lot of information for one man to acquire, including details that could only be got by close association with soldiers and inspection of military works, something he apparently thought Townsend could do without drawing unwanted attention. Washington's focus on New New York's defenses stemmed from his ambition to make a move against the city. A French fleet under the Comte d'Estaing was said to be approaching the region. Washington hoped to persuade d'Estaing to support him in his assault on New York, the most powerful and most important British center of the war. If they could catch the British by surprise, then the American and French might be able to overwhelm their defenses and take the city. But any chance of such a surprise was lost. In early October, Townsend reported that General Clinton's scouts had spotted the approaching French fleet and the British were frantically preparing to defend the city against them. Hawks were placed readily to be sunk and so blocked the channel. Fire ships were prepared to attack the enemy ships. 
garrisons were increased on approaches to the city, including in western Long Island, blocking any advance. Washington may make out of Connecticut. Disappointing at this news was for Washington. It confirmed the value of the copper ring, who had given him enough information to decide against a potentially disastrous attack. That fall, General Clinton was also making plans to go on campaign, plans which he, like Washington, would have to abandon. The preparations led to an increase in troop activities and foraging in New York, which once again set Woodhall's nerves on edge. On the 10th of November, he was questioned by a party of more than 200 British foragers on his way to a meeting with Townsend, a meeting which Townsend missed. The incident inevitably played on the mind of the ever-twitchy Woodhall, who again made noises without leaving spying. Then came another of the successes that made all the risk worthwhile. Townsend heard about a plan to hit the Americans where they were most vulnerable in their economy. The Patriots had struggled from the start to fund their war. The printing of paper dollars had given them a currency to work with, but it was one that suffered from rampant inflation in which people were therefore weary of accepting. By the middle of 1779, it took 30 continental dollars to buy a single silver dollar, and the continental was trading at $200 to a guinea in New York. This is why paying Woodhull and other currencies had placed an extra burden on Washington. One of the reasons the currency suffered so badly was the British made deliberate efforts to undermine it. They had previously printed fake American currency, then spread exaggerated rumors of fakes to undermine what faith in the money remained. The fakes were printed on thicker paper than the originals, and so could be identified by the discerning eye. But that did not stop them drastically undermining the colonial economy and being very successful at it. The news that Townsend heard in the fall of 1779 was particularly disturbing. The British had acquired a batch of paper like Congress used to make its currency. They, had, they could print perfect copies which would flood the market without the hope of being identified, completely wrecking the Patriots' economy. This intelligence helped Congress to make a critical decision. They retired the current currency, recalling all the bills. If the British could forge their money, then they would stop using it. It was a difficult decision, but one which added to their financial woes, but saved them from the worst problems down the line. A brush with disaster. Washington was still eager to receive the Culper intelligence more quickly and he was willing to put pressure on his agents to get it. He wanted a more direct route of communications across the North River through Staten Island, cutting through the circuitous system that had developed to avoid capture. Woodhall was meant to discuss this with Townsend during a meeting at Christmas 1779, but forgot. Washington, who had long clashed with Woodhall, became increasingly annoyed and determined to cut him out of the ring. Though Talmadge, he encouraged Townsend to find his own way of getting messages out of the city, used a more direct route. He offered some contacts, but Townsend was too cautious to trust anyone. 
he had not found for himself. And so he settled on his teenage cousin, James Townsend. James was sent across the Hudson on March 1780, carrying a message written in invisible ink between the lines of a love poem. The part of New Jersey he was going into, though controlled by the Patriots, was full of loyalist sympathizers. He therefore used a cover story that he was himself a loyalist, off to covertly recruit men for the British Army. Unfortunately, he wound up drinking in the house of Dejanberries, a family of patriots. They played the part of the loyalists to catch out this apparent British agent. Drunk and showing off to two young women, James gave his story about recruiting for the British. The family took him prisoner and dragged him to the local patriot leaders who found the pages of poetry. When Washington found out what had happened, he had to go to great lengths to ensure James's release. The general was furious. If James had been this indiscreet about real loyalists, he could have been giving away the secrets of his mission to the enemy, blowing the culper operation. Washington had to expand time and effort getting a drunken, reckless teenager out of trouble. And to cap it all off, the letter had been so clumsily created that Washington applied the reagent to reveal the message. It became illegible. Townsend was angry, embarrassed and afraid the news of the business would get out, leading to his capture and the execution by the British. Woodhull, briefed on the affair by Talmadge, discovered Townsend had gone beyond his back in trying to communicate directly with Washington and had endangered them all by his unsuitable choice of courier. He went to talk with him in New York, at which point Townsend resigned as a spy. It was only after two or more visits from Woodhall and intervention by Talmadge that he was persuaded to keep gathering intelligence. Though he insisted he would not write reports, only verbally pass on to Woodhall what he had seen. Washington's patience with his work with his awkward agents finally ran out. He decided that the information they gave was neither useful nor prompt enough for it to be worth the effort of the revolution. Woodhall's regular request for payment of expenses aggravated. He shut down the operation with acknowledging their achievements or paying Woodhall the money he was owed. Rescuing Rochambeau. Once his anger had passed, Washington realized his mistake. The agents in New York could still be valuable. In July 1780, only two months after shutting down the Culper Ring, he sent Talmadge to find out if it could be revived. Little did he realize how much he needed their help. The reason for making contact was the approach of a French fleet led by the Comte de Rochambeau. As with d'Estaing's earlier approach, Washington was hopeful he could persuade Rochambeau to help him to seize New York. Talmadge's mission was therefore twofold, to see if the members of the Culper Ring were willing to re-engage, and find out if they had heard anything about the coming of the French. Talmadge got lucky on this journey. Arriving at Fairfield on the 15th of July, he found Brewster in the harbor and was able to cross him to talk at that night. There he found Woodhall lying in bed sick, 
but Austin Rowe available to ride to New York and talk to Townsend. Talmadge, meanwhile, returned to Patriot territory. Rosu came back from New York with a report written in invisible ink, hidden on a fake order for merchandise allegedly written by Colonel Floyd, Woodhall's unwitting loyalist beard. Townsend had news so important that he was not just willing to rejoin the ring, but willing to put his information in writing, despite his earlier decision not to. The British Admiral Graves had assembled nine ships of the line. 8,000 British troops had embarked into the transports. This flotilla was heading for Rhode Island to attack the newly arrived French. The British effort was overseen by General Clinton, whose own spies had informed him the French were coming. He intended to, tend to attack them once they landed, while they were tried and unprepared. He would hammer them both on land and sea, forcing a retreat. The Americans would lose the support, a significant military blow. Politically, it would make the French more reticent about the involvement in the war, helping to isolate the rebels. Brewster arrived in Connecticut with the report on the 21st. Unable to find Talmadge, he sent a dragoon to headquarters. In Washington's absence, the message was received and deciphered by Alexander Hamilton, one of the general's closest aides. Realizing the urgency of the situation, Hamilton sent riders to inform Rochambeau and the Marquis de Lafayette, who was heading to join the new French force. Forewarned, the French and Americans were able to prepare for the British attack. Clinton, hearing about their military movement from his agents, gave up on the operation. Rochambeau's force had been saved by the Culper Ring. Back in business. In the aftermath of the Rochambeau affair, the Culper Ring was reformed. Woodhall was willing to re return to work for Washington, especially after the general paid him the money he was owed. He persuaded Townsend to continue their work, supported by a fresh promise from Washington of a government job after the war. Both men set to trying to find a faster way to send the messages to Washington and believe that it might be possible via Calneck on Oyster Bay, allowing emergency messages to be received in 12 hours instead of several days. And both agreed they wanted to get rid of the courier row, who they found increasingly unreliable. Washington acutely aware that Rose rides to and from New York also accrued significant expenses, inclined to agree with this, but Talmadge talked him out of cutting row loose just yet. The expenses were reasonable and the courier had done good work. There was no need to make a change until a better option was secured.